All right. Welcome back to Single Malt Matters, the American Single Malt Whiskey Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Drew, and a very special and and cool show today, one that I've been looking forward to for a long time. Actually, uh, this I'll go ahead and say it. This episode is a big part of the reason why I wanted to start this podcast in the first place, because I mentioned it a few times in a couple of different episodes that we are in sort of an unprecedented, at least in recent history, um, evolutionary time in whiskey in that we're watching the birth of a brand new category and classification spirit. Um, But that comes with it some growing pains and out of those growing pains uh i I think and and steve um you know let's let's start talking about this was born the american single malt whiskey commission and and with me today i have mr steve hawley uh with the commission uh so steve tell us a little bit about yourself and uh let's start just jumping right into it about what the commission is what the goals are who the members are and uh you know where you see things going Sure. Well, first, thanks for having me, Matt. Appreciate it. Uh, this is always fun to talk to uh, people that are really geeked out about American single malt and single malt in general. So um, I'm happy to be here. Uh, again, my name is Steve Hawley. I'm uh, the president of the American Single Malt Whiskey Commission. Uh, I also am the director of marketing for Westland Distillery out in Seattle, Washington. Uh, and this really all started with us at Westland uh, about five years ago recognizing that what we were doing, we make exclusively single malt whiskey at Westland. And we recognized early on that the fact that this category didn't exist presented some commercial challenges for us. Uh, As we went out into the marketplace and talked to retailers and bartenders and ultimately consumers, uh, you said American single malt whiskey and you you saw a a lot of raised eyebrows. No one had ever heard of such a thing. Uh, most people uh, worldwide, uh, their first instinct is to think of Scotch whiskey when you say single malt, and uh, that led to some challenges, educations with consumers, but also education with the trade as well. And when I say the trade, again, I mean retailers and bartenders, those who are representing our products out in the world. Um, they didn't know where to put us, frankly. Uh, they didn't know how to talk about us, and. Keep in mind, this is against the backdrop of the boom in craft distilling in this country. I believe we were in the low 200s when we started Westland in 2010. And now I believe there's upwards of almost 3,000 distilleries in this country. So against the backdrop of of that boom in craft distilling, um, we come with an entirely new category of whiskey in American single malt. Certainly, we weren't the first to make single malt in this country. There were others before us, but uh, at Westland, we were really the first ones to talk about what we were doing in the context of American single malt whiskey. We put it on our label. Um, We talked about the category, but with a category that doesn't exist, uh, it was hard for people to wrap their heads around it and understand where to put us on the shelf, how to list us on a menu, and, and how to talk about us. So... Back in 2016, March of 2016, we had an opportunity to gather some of our colleagues that were making single malt whiskey in this country at a meeting in Chicago. You mentioned that it was snowing there today in Missoula. Um, It was snowing hard (laughs) in Chicago in March of 2016 when we were able to pull together nine different distillers 
uh, in the U.S. that we're making single malt and come together and, and talk about what single malt in this country should mean. What's the definition of single malt? More broadly, uh, how do we shape a definition that has some meaning in this country from a regulatory standpoint? And then what can we do as a group to advance the cause of American single malts in this country and beyond? Uh, so that was a pretty momentous occasion. That's where the American Single Malt Commission was founded. Uh, that's where we drafted the uh, standard of identity, uh, which is a term used by our federal government to recognize what a definition for a particular style of spirit is. And that's where it all, all began. So what, was there kind of a, a can you put your finger on one single instance or example of a time where, or, or do you remember the moment that you first thought, you know what, we need to, we need to build an organization uh, in order to do this? Um, I guess the answer would be no. I can't think of one time. It was just kind of repeated. Um, circumstances over and over again, you know, where our team would go to a retail store and we'd see our whiskey in the craft section. Uh, we'd go to another retail store and our whiskey would be in the local section. We'd go to a third store in the same day and we'd see our whiskey in the American whiskey <laughs> section. Um, and that put us at a disadvantage, you know, um, American single malt whiskey a single malt generally is inherently a, um, a more expensive product to make. Uh, for us to be in the local section with, you know, vodkas and gins and all kinds of other things, it puts us at a disadvantage. Uh, for us to be in the, quote, American whiskey section puts us next to bourbon. And just for context, um, bourbon, which is made uh, from, by law, at least 51% corn. Corn in this country is a subsidized grain. Um, currently, you could get corn for in the ballpark of seven cents a pound, maybe. Uh, uh, the cheapest barley, uh, malted barley that we use for our whiskey starts at about 35 cents a pound. So you're already in order of magnitude more expensive just in the raw materials. Um, so for us to be, you know, Westland's a, a, a ultra premium price product to be on a shelf next to a 25 to $30 bottle of bourbon you know, is, is immediately putting us at a disadvantage and immediately confusing the customer as to what it is that they're choosing from. Um, most customers go into um, a retail store and if they're looking for bourbon, they go to the bourbon section. And if they're looking for single malt, they go to the single malt section. They don't go to the bourbon section looking for single malt. Uh, we had the same problem in bars and restaurants. You know, we'd see our whiskey in the, more often than not, the quote, other section. You know, you've got Scotch whiskey, you've got Japanese whiskey. You know, in some places we went to uh, bars. I remember this one specifically, if you're asking for an instance. Um, we went to a bar, uh, Matt Hoffman and I, and we saw uh, a really well-organized uh, whiskey list. You had Scotch whiskey section, you had uh, Japanese whiskey section, um, and you had a Taiwanese whiskey section. Oh, yeah. In Taiwan, there was only one distillery at the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so a whole section for one distillery, and then we found ourselves in the other section. Um, so, again, you know, for us, it was just kind of 
a period of time where we kept seeing the same challenges over and over and over again and recognizing that unless we did something formally to establish and promote this category, then we were always going to be kind of in this netherlands from a presentation standpoint. And, and and this is something that I still see. And, and we've been making single malt in this country now. Um, and, and it's for a while. And it's becoming more of a visible thing. And we're starting to see more examples of it on the shelves. But from a conceptual perspective, because I, st- I still see it today in my favorite liquor, liquor store here in Missoula. Because I'll go in there and... Uh, there are a couple of bottles of Westland on the shelf, and they're kind of situated in this weird zone in between Scotch whiskey and Irish whiskey, mm-hmm. and but more closer to the Scotch side. But then you've got over hey, that's as good that's as good as we can hope for in many cases yeah. these days. And and yeah. but then over on the other shelf on the bourbon section, you've got you know a couple of different expressions from Stranahan's. And so I go over and, and I'll ask the guys at the store, like, why do why do you have Westland over here in the Scotch section, and then you've got Stranahan's over here in the Bourbon section? And you know, I know there are a couple of different factors at play here. The first one is Stranahan's doesn't call it single malt; they call it Colorado whiskey. And in terms of like, if I'm a stock guy working at a liquor store, I'm going to look at that and say Colorado whiskey. Oh, that's a bourbon. And then I'm going to look at Westland and say, and I'm going to it's going to say single malt. And so, oh, okay, that's that's a scotch, so I'm going to put them over there. But in terms of, again, going back to the need for a standard of identity, in terms of what that stuff is, uh, from a mash bill perspective, there's a whole lot of similarity. So those two bottles, uh, in, in, in concept anyway, should be a lot closer on the shelves. So, yeah, I, I think that from that definitive perspective, there is a lot of work that needs to be done still. Uh, and, and so I'm, I'm really, I'm curious about a couple of different aspects of that in order to, um, get a better understanding of how do we get from where we are now to, and and where we started from, because arguably there's been headway that's been made. There's been more awareness that's being built, but there's still so much more that needs to be done. You're absolutely right. There's there's been a lot of headway, and again, you know, in the three years now that the commission has been a formal entity, that is uh, a lot of the mission of the organization. Um, there, there is a long way to go. You know, uh, particularly when you when you talk about shelving at retail, we'll still go into retail stores and. And we'll talk to them about American single malt whiskey and uh, make a case for an American single malt whiskey shelf in their store. And a lot of times we'll hear, well, I don't have enough American single malts to to justify an entire shelf space. And we'll say, actually, you do. And we'll take that person by the hand and we'll walk them around their own store, just like you said. And we'll show them that they actually do have six to eight American single malts. They're just kind of scattered around the store. and and placed in different sections. So we do have a long way to go. And just like selling whiskey in general, uh, single malt whiskey in particular, it is it is a hand-sold proposition. It is a one-person-at-a-time type of business. And the same is true from the commission standpoint. There are things that we can do um, by being on podcasts like this and speaking at uh, conventions and uh, kind of 
<clears throat> turning the, the gears of the PR machine to get some air cover. But at the end of the day, it's incumbent upon all of us. And there's 160 some odd distilleries that are now part of the commission. It's incumbent upon all of us one by one in every conversation we have with uh, retailers and bartenders and consumers to to make the case and to educate. And that's that takes a lot of effort and it takes a long time. So so kind of looking back and looking forward, uh, let's talk about roadblocks. What historically have been the biggest roadblocks in terms of the mission of of the commission and the objectives of the commission? What have been the biggest roadblocks uh, in terms of making progress? And then looking forward, what do you foresee being the, the roadblocks that you're anticipating? Well, of course, everybody wants to talk about regulation when we discuss the commission with people. And don't get me wrong, that is a main priority of our organization and has been at the top of our list since we started. Um, that's an obstacle. You know, right now, our federal government does not recognize American single malt whiskey as a thing. It does not exist as a category of spirit. If you were to look at a Westland bottle, for example, um, it says American single malt on one line and whiskey on a separate line. Uh, our federal government recognizes Westland and most other um, whiskeys in the commission as whiskey. Um, and they don't really even see the words American single malt because that doesn't exist yet. So that was that was and continues to be a main obstacle. And I'm sure Matt will get into uh, the regulatory process a good bit. So I'll table that for now. Um, you know, I'd say the other big obstacle is is just you know, history. Um, there are incredible single malts being made all over the world right now. But the reality is, in most people's mind, particularly in this country, if you said single malt, the immediate reaction is scotch whiskey. So um, just the idea that single malt can be made outside the borders of Scotland is an obstacle in most people's minds. Um, <laughs> it's strange when we go overseas, that obstacle kind of disappears. People in America, when you say whiskey, they think bourbon. Mm -hmm. uh, when you say single malt, they think scotch. In most of the, other, the rest of the world, it's the opposite. If you say whiskey to someone, they think single malt and they understand what single malt means. And they certainly think of Scotland as the birthplace of single malt, though I think many of our Irish friends would argue with that. Um, <laughs> But they recognize what single malt whiskey is and they understand that single malt whiskey has some regionality to it and that the likes of India and Taiwan, as we mentioned before, and the Kiwis um, mm -hmm. and the Japanese, of course, that single malt whiskey is coming from all corners of the earth now. Uh, in America, that's a much more challenging conversation to have. You know, in most cases, Americans don't even recognize that bourbon means corn, um, let alone that single malt doesn't mean scotch. Uh, so that's a pretty big obstacle for us to overcome in our daily conversations. So what what do you think? 
what needs to happen then? Like, what are the chain of events that need to happen in order to get the standard passed and adopted? Because it kind of, the more you think about it and the more you look around at, at what's out there and, and how they define themselves in Taiwan, in India, in Japan, it's, it's almost like we, just based on our production potential and our access to quality grain, we have the potential to do more and, and I mean, just based on sheer size of the country and the number of distillers that we have, we have the potential to do more in the single malt category as our own thing than pretty much anyone else out there. So it almost seems like we're kind of the last ones to the table on this, uh, to, to get this defined and articulated. And, and so, so, so how do we get there? Like what needs to happen from this point moving forward? Well, there's a number of things that we need to do and. I alluded to it before, there's a regulatory effort uh, that has been made and needs to continue to be shepherded. Uh, and there's an education task for us all to do. Um, we have a lot more control over the latter than we do the former. Uh, we've done what we can uh, with respect to uh, the regulatory process and, and getting our federal government to recognize single malt whiskey in America as a thing and give it a definition formally. Um, mm -hmm. And then from an education standpoint, that is just diligence, right? That is, that is one at a time. But on the regulatory front, I mean, you mentioned um, the opportunity that we have in America to, to have a voice in the global single malt conversation and to have a distinctive voice at that, that we are, you know, uh, we have access to in incredible raw materials um, at our feet here in in this country, and that's not necessarily true around the world. Um, look, this is a commodity-driven uh, global economy that we live in. Um, you're able to create nearly anything that you want nearly anywhere in the world uh, because you do have access to uh, to those raw materials and the same equipment, et cetera. Um, but there is something to be said for authenticity and provenance, as we like to talk about at Westland. So, um, yeah, there's a huge opportunity with America. And, yes, we are late to the game because bourbon has been king here for so long. Uh, but that is changing. As I mentioned, there's 160-some-odd distilleries now that are members of the commission. So that means they are making some level of single malts, according to our definition. Um, and it's imperative that we, we succeed on the regulatory front. You mentioned Japanese whiskey before. That's a great example. Um, Japanese whiskey actually has never bothered to define what single malt whiskey in Japan means, and they're paying the price for it now. Um, they're having a lot of trouble with unscrupulous characters coming in and, um, you know, maybe putting a label on whiskey that was shipped in from somewhere else and then shipping it out the next day and calling it Japanese whiskey. So they're having a problem and we're, we're hoping to avoid similar problems like that by again, succeeding in our petition to the federal government for a formal standard of identity. So, and, and kind of digging in a little bit deeper into the nature of the question. Um, from a regulatory perspective specifically, um, and, and I think I can split this into two pieces. The first one is, why haven't we been able to get that new standard adopted? And then, and and what needs to happen, do you think? How do we need, what do we need to do in order to get that standard adopted? 
Well, the simple answer to the question of why hasn't it been adopted is that the TTB, which uh, governs rulemaking for spirits in this country, um, doesn't change the rules very often. In fact, it's been over three decades since they have updated the BAM, the Beverage Alcohol Manual, that outlines what can and cannot be um, defined for different spirit types in this country. So um, the simple answer is time. Um, they actually uh, just proposed uh, a list of rule changes in November of 2018. It was a 144 page document, I believe. But like I said, that's the first time they had done so in decades. Um, and then there are all number of things wrapped up in the delay. Um, first and foremost, the TTB currently is part of the Treasury Department in the United States. Uh, the last time that they changed the rules, they were not even part of the Treasury Department. So there's not a long uh, history of institutional knowledge for how this process is even supposed to go. Oh, wow. Um, the next challenge is that there's been 30 years of petitions piling up. <laughs> so there's a lot of people in a lot of different sectors of the spirits world that have uh, been wanting some changes on a lot of different things. So um, they're kind of doing, doing this in one fell swoop uh, relatively. So uh, that becomes a, just a, a logistical challenge. Um, you know, there's always a challenge in any uh, regulatory process of the um, the political times. And I'm not even talking, you know, red states, blue states. I'm just talking about the fact that uh, priorities are constantly shuffled as the regular or as the political calendar uh, ebbs and flows. And right now we are headed towards a new election. And again, regardless of politics, that just slows things down. Um, obviously, the uh, the day that we're living in today with um, all kinds of uncertainties uh, all over the world doesn't, doesn't put something like establishing American single malt as a category at the top of anybody's regulatory agenda. Um, so it's just time. Um, I think the other factor is uh, the TTB's resources. We all have to recognize that they have an enormous task to do. I read an article the other day that said they uh, they review and approve, I think it was 190,000 label submissions a year. This is anything from a new beer label to a new whiskey label to a new wine label, every single thing that gets uh, produced and labeled in this country needs to go through TTB's label review. That is an enormous task for an organization that literally has a handful of people. Um, so, you know, a lot of people talk to me and they're eager to get this done and they're eager to see some movement on the regulatory front. And the first thing they want to do is, is go after the TTB, um, and, and I have to caution people, you know, they have an enormous task on their hands. Um, and we have to recognize that, that this is going to take some time. I mean, thankfully for us, we all make whiskey for a living. We're, we're very used to being patient. We understand um, <laughs> how to handle ourselves, uh, even in, in the midst of kind of eagerness, right? But, um, 
We, we formally submitted our petition for a standard of identity to the CTB in October of 2017. Uh, they didn't propose uh, publish any proposed rule changes until 2018. Um, we were not included, actually, in that 144-page document. Uh, certainly, we were disappointed to not be included. We had had conversations with the TTB for years, um, and they were very bullish on the idea. Um, we came to realize that likely that proposed list of rule changes was, was likely written several years ago. Um, what happens when any government body, as far as I understand, but certainly the TTB, when proposed rule changes are issued, um, it immediately goes into a comment period, a public comment period where anybody uh, in the country or outside of the country, frankly, um, can comment on the proposed changes. Um, so the, the, the response that we got from them was that there are a number of things that weren't included that were, that were fairly, um, New at the time, in 2018, American single malt whiskey uh, had only been a conversation for a couple years. Um, their barrel-aged gin was one of the things that a lot of people were talking about at the time. But, you know, the highlight of the proposed changes was uh, white whiskey, which everybody kind of got a snicker at because that was kind of a thing 10 years ago, right? <laughs> so, um the the general understanding is that it was written a while ago uh, rather than go back to the drawing board and take more time before publishing proposed changes um, use the use the public comment period to uh, account for some of the conversations that were newer like american single malt whiskey um, barrel aged gin uh, format sizes in this country right now um, we're not allowed to put whiskey or any spirit into a bottle that's 700 milliliters which is what the rest of the world uses so there is a big um, effort to champion that so all of those things were kind of uh, really emphasized in the public comment period that public comment period was supposed to be 180 days in the early part of 2019, but of course, if you'll remember, the government shut down for a while, so they ended up extending it. So you get the idea, right? This is yeah. this is something that is going to be a long time in coming. Um, the public comment period formally closed in in the summer of 2019. Uh, so the process, as far as we're concerned, is over. There's nothing that we can do beyond continuing to champion our cause. Um, and help to answer any questions. Um, but the, the the current expectation is that this is going to take a year or more to be finally ratified. Um, we did hear from the TTB that they are suggesting that they might take that long list of proposed changes and make determinations on them in a rolling way. So they'll do some now, some of the more simple ones now, some of the more complicated ones in time. So hopefully we're, we're one of the simple ones. <laughs> we think it's pretty straightforward. We think there's, you know, there hasn't been anybody um, globally that's really stood up and challenged uh, what we're doing. Because again, what, what we've proposed in our definition is one, very much in line with 
the global expectations and understanding of what America of what single malt means. Um, and um, I think that that number two, we haven't really uh, run into any people that have challenged it because the purpose of the whole thing is consumer education, you know, and it's really hard for someone to stand up and say, I don't think there should be a definition for that. I don't think it should be clear what consumers are buying. Ultimately, what we're trying to do here is give the consumer confidence that what they think is in that bottle is actually in that bottle. Uh, and our definition is very straightforward and very uh, clear about that. And it's, it's hard for someone to stand up and say, that's not a good thing. So let, let's talk a little bit about barrels, uh, because I know that this is, this is one of the, one of the hot topics I know for distillers that I've talked to. And, and one of the things that they're really kind of pushing for, uh, first of all, I read a couple of days ago that we're potentially facing a barrel shortage, uh, for, for whiskey. And I just read an article this morning in the Daily Beast about that. Lou Bryson wrote a piece. Yeah, and it's 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 interesting in that I don't I don't think it's too much of a surprise to anybody. Um, you know, when you look at kind of our history in the country with natural resources and, and how we handle natural resources, uh, and with seeing what's happened with bourbon specifically, how much it's exploded, and and mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, we're using a lot more wood now to age bourbon specifically than we were you know 10 years ago but then on add on top of that what we're doing with with american single malt uh and that's another thing i want to ask you too about volume uh like kind of where where we stand now versus 10 years ago in terms of production but in in terms of the proposed standard and the requirement or the lack of the requirement to use that first use uh oak Mm -hmm. do you think that that could have an impact like the 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 impending barrel shortage could have an impact on whether or not that is going to be a sticking point or or if that's going to help the cause altogether um well certainly you know the way that we wrote the definition and just to be clear what you're referring to is within our definition there is no requirement to use virgin oak um there is a requirement in the bourbon standard of identity to do that. So uh, as you as you mentioned, we do get some questions about why we didn't require virgin oak. Um, the process for determining what should or should not be included in our standard of identity certainly did not take into account potential barrel shortages and, and dynamics of the market as such. Um, really the intention across all of the clauses in our definition um, was to do two things. One, to give it enough specificity that it had meaning, that it meant something. And uh, number two, to make it flexible enough to take advantage of what you brought up earlier, which is a huge opportunity that this country has and not only opportunity, but the, the reality that the size and diversity of this country really compels us to leave room for innovation and creativity in single malt whiskey. I think one of the things that we considered as we looked to the Scotch whiskey industry is 
to some extent, it's rigidity um, and it's stifling of innovation. Um, we think that, look, there's, there's great Scotch malt whiskey out there, no doubt. Um, and in, an, in a time where whiskey is booming in all styles, uh, where the Scotch whiskey distilleries are even having trouble keeping up with demand, you know, there's certainly no motivation or incentive for them to, to move away from a formula that's working. Uh, but here in America, you know, we aren't bound by those traditions and those conventions. And a lot of us, Westland's a great example, look at single malt whiskey and say, this isn't something that's finished. This isn't something that's been solved. There's so many opportunities to explore within the confines of single malt whiskey as, as a defined style of whiskey. Um, and, you know, again, in Westland's case, you know, we adhere to the, the general process in raw materials, you know, barley, yeast, water, and oak, you know, but within those four things, uh, there is, there is an incredible amount of unexplored territory. So we certainly didn't want to create a definition for the category as a whole that limited people's ability to explore those things. So yes, it was a balancing act, but um, but it's one that I think we did quite deftly, um, and we've got something that that has some teeth to it, um, but also leaves room for people to be creative and and be innovative. So uh, you know, coming back to the barrel requirement, that's one of them. I mean, it's really it's really funny to me that. Uh, you know, what was it? I'd say maybe six months ago or so when the Scotch Whiskey Association decreed that they could now start using tequila casks and bijo casks and some others. And, you know, everybody, you know, sang from the mountaintops that this was, you know, you know, such a liberation, <laughs> you know, I think that's kind of funny uh, to some extent is that, you know, <laughs> wow, we can use tequila casks now. Um, so, you know, if you look at a lot of our members, you know, wood programs, there's a there's already a huge you know, variety of, of casks being used. So, you know, the the new oak requirement was not something that we wanted to institute. Um, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is issue creativity, as I mentioned, but the other one is just uh, a recognition that you know barley and corn are two completely different grains uh, when it comes to whiskey making. Um, if you look at um, uh, a lot of our distilleries uh, that are in, you know, warm climates, uh, like the bourbon industry was in, at its infancy, um, you know, you put a very delicate spirit that's made from uh, malted barley into a new oak casks, which a, a lot of us do do. Um, that's a pretty intense environment for for a for a, a relatively delicate grain, and um, you kind of compound that by a hot climate like Texas. You know, take my friend Jared at Balcones in in Waco, Texas. You know, making single malt for him is is a whole different ballgame than it is for us up here in the mild and uh, humid uh, Pacific Northwest. So 
you know, we have to allow people uh, in casks and in, in other things, the latitude to, to contend with the realities of their location. Um, you know, Scotland doesn't have that problem. Scotland's pretty damn similar from one end to the other, you know, <laughs> even, even from the islands, you know, the, the, the Hebrides to the, the lowlands, you know, I mean, there's not a huge shift there in the dynamics of their climate. Um, and I know they like to talk about the influence of the different, you know, water sources and, you know, coastal climates and, and things of that nature, but all said and done compared to the U S I mean, there's, there's, there is no comparison as far as the variety of climates. So again, the, the new Oak provisions that you see in bourbon just doesn't really translate adequately to single malt whiskey. Yeah. And, and, you know, kind of along those lines on a recent episode, uh, I was actually tasting the Balcones mm-hmm. single malt. And that's one of the things that, that, that uh, kind of jumped out immediately uh, because the person I was tasting with hadn't had an American single malt before. And that was, that was one of the first, you know, when we're talking about sensory evaluation on the spirit, it was like, wow, this, this actually tastes a lot like bourbon. And that's because you get so much of that barrel complexity from that virgin mm-hmm. oak that comes out and, and even more so when you put it in, in that, uh, that Waco, Texas climate. So, so yeah, I think, uh, there's definitely a lot to be said there. And in terms of our, our potential for, uh, variety and innovation, uh, you know, it's like we're, you were kind of mentioning before different regions and, and, you know, opening, opening up the environment for people to explore you know, different aspects of their region because, you know, Scotland, everybody knows you've got your space side and your highlands and your islands and your Isla uh, and your Campbelltown. And, it, you know, all of those are sort of differentiated by flavor. Uh, and, you know, I'm curious. <laughs> I, I, I would love to you, chime in on that. It's, it's, it's funny because people bring up the, you know, I love walking into a pub and seeing the, you know, the placemat that has the regions of Scotland in it. And, uh, uh, was it last month? Uh, yeah, last month. Sorry. <laughs> um, Westland hosted uh, Dave Broom's World Whiskey Forum uh, last month, which brought people from all over the globe uh, to talk about the future of whiskey. It was it was incredible. Uh, it was really transformative for all of us. And um, the topic of the regions of Scotland came up not in a group setting, but just in one of the many uh, side conversations that that were happening and. And I, I won't mention who, but someone that, that is in the Scotch whiskey industry, you know, chuckled alongside with us at the kind of silliness these days of those regions, you know, uh, drawing those lines uh, of those regions because they're all using the same yeast. They're all using the same, you know, uh, barley that, you know, mostly comes from Eastern Europe. You know, the, the reality of the influence of those regions on the whiskeys is, is a lot more marketing than it is reality. Um, but here in the States, you know, those regions absolutely do put a fingerprint on these whiskeys. You know, you go back to, um, uh, to Jared at Balcones. And, and again, one of the things we talk about innovation and creativity, but really that comes down to a very American value, which is freedom. You know, uh, Jared is very interested in, in 
single malt whiskey that's matured in new oak and he should have the freedom to explore that he has realities that he has to deal with in in respect to the climate that he's making whiskey in so that brings up yet another point that people talk to us a lot about which is age statements how come you don't have an age statement in our standard of identity in our definition there is no age requirement um you know to suggest that jared has to keep his whiskey in a new oak cask in the intense heat of of uh texas for three and a half years you know is is kind of unreasonable right so you know he should have the freedom to um to make the choices that are right for him in his time and his place um so yeah there's a lot of things that that we left out not a lot of things a couple of things that are um that are a result of the realities of making single malt whiskey in america but also um you know the 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 result of you know tradition overreaching in scotland in the old world and again we had the freedom to 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 look at things a little differently here while still maintaining the spirit of what single malt whiskey is should be um you know 100% malted barley distilled entirely one distillery uh at the, one distillery and you know made in America if it's going to be called America so i mean those are really the core tenets that we've kept in place and the rest of the the rest of the definition caters to um freedom and creativity and the realities of how our federal government qualifies certain things in regulating spirits. So, so kind of along those lines, uh, kind of staying in that vein, you, you've got your finger on the, on the pulse of, of what's happening out there uh, in American single malt. I'd say arguably more than anyone who isn't, isn't a government employee. And, you know, I think, I, don't know, I think I already know the answer to this before I ask the question, but do you think, and it might be too soon to even answer, I don't know, but are there any specific regions? Because, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about how that's sort of one of our American values is, is exploring, um, uh, is as exploration and freedom and, and regional variation. Um, mm-hmm. Are there any specific regions that you would consider as having either higher concentration of producers, more potential um, for production, or maybe even the most potential in terms of establishing a unique style. Like like on the corn side, even though bourbon's made everywhere, you ask the average person where they think majority of it comes from, they'll tell you, you know, Kentucky and Tennessee, mm-hmm. even though it's made all over the country. And uh, nobody thinks of Indiana, but, but what they don't realize is how much of the bourbon they're drinking actually comes from Indiana. Mm-hmm. But for American single malt, is there a geographic area that you consider to to already be or maybe have the potential to be a high watermark for the category? Well, first of all, just with respect to numbers, uh, and I'm no authority on you know the, the the distilling landscape in this country as far as numbers by state and whatnot. I know that Washington, I believe, is still the number one state for having the most distilleries. Um, 
keep in mind that American Single Malt of the 160 or so distilleries that are members of the commission, you know, only a handful of us are exclusively dedicated to single malt. So lots of these distilleries are making some amount of single malt, but they're making other things. You can extrapolate from there that, you know, the concentration of single malt in this country is going to probably be in the highest concentration of distilleries generally in this country. So, you know, you think of places like the Pacific Northwest, you think of places like Denver, um, there are there are kind of clusters, I think, of distilleries, though there are distilleries in every state. Um, as far as kind of the bellwether, you know, certainly I'm biased, so <laughs> um, none of my colleagues are here to argue with me, so I guess I have the microphone. Uh, but, you know, the Pacific Northwest is obviously a natural place. It's one of the best barley growing regions, not only in this country, but in the world. Um, oh man, Colin Keegan from Santa Fe is calling me right now. He must be listening. Um, <laughs> um, but you know, and there's a high concentration of, of distilleries here making single malt and a number of them, uh, that are very, uh, that are very active in, uh, the commission and in our cause for the category. You think of, uh, Jason at Copperworks here in Seattle. You think of Christian at, uh, House Spirits down in Portland. Um, you know, these are two of our fellow founders. And um, I think that you see kind of a high concentration and uh, uh, a high quality coming from the Pacific Northwest just because it is so closely connected to agriculture of uh, barley in this country. Uh, so uh, certainly I think that, you know, the Pacific Northwest, the bellwether, but again, there's, there's, you know, from Nantucket to um, to Santa Fe, New Mexico here, you know, and, and everywhere in between, there are there are American single malt producers. Um, to your question of distinct styles emerging, we get that question all the time, as you would imagine. Um, and I'll be honest, there's not a, a consensus even amongst our group um, of whether that is a real thing or not. I, I personally think that we're not ready to draw those lines, uh, but eventually we'll probably get there. There are stylistic things emerging, which are the results of certain folks making choices that express a sense of place in their whiskey. Uh, but again, that's a choice. It's not a, an inevitable thing. So, well, I mean, and I think I, it needs it. I think it needs to really happen if it's going to be authentic and it's going to have staying power. It needs to be organic, right? I mean, that's not something that you can really um, specify in terms of well, you need to make it this way over here and you need to make it that way over there. But I think the potential is there for there to be regional variations that just kind of develop organically. I I, I see. I certainly see that happening. If you kind of take the the same course as the settlement of, of this country and you go east to west, you know, you've got distilleries on the eastern side of this country that are producing whiskeys that could arguably be considered more, tr quote, traditional in style. Um, and as you go west, you see, um, you, you see more divergence from that. 
Um, you see certain things in the south and southwest of this country where they're using mesquite uh, or things of that nature to smoke the grain. Um, if you look into the Pacific Northwest, you see a very strong um, brewing influence on the whiskey scene. So I, I think some of those things are starting to emerge. I, I agree with some of my colleagues in the commission that it's too early to, you know, stringently draw those lines and to box people into certain styles. Um, uh, I still think at the heart of it, you know, choice, freedom, creativity, and expression is an important thing to allow for. And that's not just from a regulatory standpoint, but that's from a marketing standpoint. You know, if, if we as an organization were to draw a bunch of boxes um, that the consumers then start to rely upon, you know, that's not really fair to someone in, I'll say Indiana, since you brought it up, that might want, that might have an idea for doing something interesting. If that means they're bringing grain in from the Palouse in Washington state or, or doing something interesting with, with barrels, then they should be able to do that and not be kind of forced from a, business standpoint to conform to a regional style. Um, so we'll see how it plays out. I mean, that's, that's what's interesting about this. So, and we've kind of touched on different aspects of this um, already, and, and this is going to be a long question. So just bear with me for a second. Fair enough. I'm ready. Let me, I'll get my coffee. Here we go. Um, I'm ready. So, and, and before I even ask the question, uh, I don't have an agenda in asking the question. This is just something that, that I've heard and I've seen it out there and I'm curious about your perspective. Okay. So now obviously the commission hasn't felt the need to include this in the proposed standard, but has there been any discussion regarding the use of American malt made from American barley? And there are a lot of reasons why I'm asking this, but, but just to put it, into perspective, the argument that I've heard is that there are some foreign automotive brands, for example, that that some people would consider to be more American than some domestic brands because a higher percentage of those vehicles are made in America than the American brands, right. which were mostly made in Mexico. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the whiskey analog to that is that there are some bottles out there that are labeled American single malt. And by all rights, they are because mm -hmm. they were mashed, fermented, distilled, matured and bottled in the United States. But the grain is all from the UK. Like, like every last kernel of that malt was bagged over in Europe uh, and then shipped to that distillery. And I think stylistically, this is obviously going to be more relevant to, to peated expressions um, and peated malt because it has such a distinctive flavor and character. But I think the argument still stands for non-peated malt. Mm -hmm. But but the sentiment that I hear is, okay, if we really want to do something unique and distinctively American, why would we start with imported malt? So again, has this been discussed? And is this something that, that can or even should be addressed? Uh, certainly it's been discussed. And uh, we receive that question on a regular basis. Um, I think that, you know, the answer from a top line comes back to, again, choice and freedom. But if you want to dig into that one more specifically, there's also the realities of the economy for barley in this country and beyond. Um, there's the, the recognition that barley doesn't grow everywhere in this country. In fact, it grows in very 
few places in this country. The amount of barley being grown in this country has been precipitously declining for years. Um, so, you know, for someone that is in a region that, that has to ship that barley in any way, um, that's, you know, that's limiting to tell that person that they have to get it from a certain place. Uh, that's not the way the economy for barley works around the world. Um, and then again, choice, you know, um, there are people using, um, imported barleys because they like the flavor profile of those barleys. Um, the barley, um, economy in, in the United States is very much, uh, driven by the commodity system, which is in turn driven by Budweiser, frankly, in Bev globally. At any given time, there's only a handful of barleys that are available uh, on the commodity market. There's a couple usually in, in Europe and then a couple different ones here in the United States, uh, Copeland being the, the barley du jour right now in the United States. Um, you know, that's four barleys out of 9,000, 10,000 varieties of barley that actually exist. So it's a pretty limiting um, economy right now, uh, globally. So, you know, for those reasons, it's, it's really difficult to, again, put people in a box and say you have to use it uh, that way. It's not the way the economy works globally. And, you know, the, the benefit to um, a distiller here uh, could be a marketing one that is, you know, um, we use American grown bar, you know, Wesson again is, is the context I have. So I'll keep using it as an example. You know, when we first started um, 10 years ago and we wanted to make a peated whiskey, we couldn't get it in this country. Nobody would peat it for us. Nobody, nobody would peat our local barley for us. Um, same is true when we said, well, we want to do um, different roasting levels, um, even with commodity barley. Uh, we couldn't get all the roasting levels that we wanted um, on the American supply chain. So we had to step outside of that because of the reality of the system that existed to us. Um, so again, you know, what's important here is the adherence to the fundamental principles of what single malt whiskey means around the world. And again, we're very myopically focused uh, on the U.S., but what's important for the commission in establishing and, and ratifying this definition is that it has uh, meaning around the world that we can export this category and and it means something and um, a lot of the decisions in the definition were made because of that as well okay that makes a lot of sense um so kind of wrapping things up a little bit um is there anything that and again i i think i already know the answer to this um well <laughs> i'm happy to give you an answer <laughs> well <laughs> i kind of kind of what what i want to what i want to get at the question i really have is what what can we do now moving forward i mean we're 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 starting to gain more recognition and understanding of what this thing is but but like we were saying before there's so much more that still needs to happen what 
what can we do as consumers? What can we do as advocates for the category? What can we do on the distilling side? Uh, like what, what can we do in general to help gain momentum for this and, and to help it grow categorically? Well, this is a softball, Matt. You're letting me do a shameless plug here, aren't you? <laughs> um, I mean, the first thing that, that you as a listener can do is visit our website and sign up uh, as a supporter. Um, doesn't cost any money. Uh, we do ask your email address, um, but that's about it. So AmericanSingleMaltWhiskey.org um, and just sign up as a supporter. You know, one, one of the most important things uh, that we can do is demonstrate, quote, industry consensus. And even you as consumers are part of the industry. Um, without you, there would be no industry. So, um, you know, it was very clear from day one in our conversations with the TTB that um, industry consensus was kind of the number one determining factor in whether they would include us uh, formally or not. So that just means that everybody out there is shaking their heads yes to this. And you can demonstrate that by becoming a supporter. Um, you'll sign up, you'll get, you know, you'll get email announcements from us. And we actually have an online forum where people can discuss some of the things that we've discussed on this podcast today. So, uh, and you can hear from people that aren't just me uh, from the commission, which is always a good thing. So uh, that's the first thing that everybody can do, uh, because as we demonstrate the size of that list of our supporters, you know, our movement only gains more strength. Um, the second thing that I would say everybody can do is impress upon the purveyors of single malt whiskey in this country that they need to categorize us as such. So when you walk into that bar, um, Tell them, why don't you have an American single malt whiskey section? When you walk into that store, tell them the same thing. Um, this is really what the average person can do. Um, and it's it's the same grassroots type of uh, approach that, that has worked for everything else in, in history is tell a friend, you know, talk to them about it, ask him to try it. You know, one of the things that's really interesting right now is the whole tariff situation. And I want to say off the bat, nobody is in favor of tariffs. Um, I can certainly say that unequivocally on behalf of Westland. Um, but I can also tell you that, you know, the colleagues that I've spoken to in the commission, you know, stand alongside of us on that one. But it would be um, foolish of us not to recognize the opportunity. Um, you know, in December-ish, end of last year, uh, the Scotch whiskey uh, distilleries, you know, dumped a lot of product into this market to get ahead of those taxes. But as that stock sells out and new, um, you know, tariffed single malt is coming into this country, you know, the regular standbys for a lot of single malt drinkers are going to be considerably more expensive. It is a great time to give American single malt whiskey a try. Um, for those people that, that are longtime scotch drinkers, you know, here's an opportunity and a reason to pick up a different bottle and see what single malt can be, you know. Um, so those are some of the things. We're working with our retail partners to do uh, certifications uh, where they get educated by our team 
um, and um, you know commit to you know carving out an American single malt whiskey shelf for us, merchandising us all together as a group. Uh, so look for those certifications. If you see a retailer that is commission certified, you know that they know what they're talking about um, and they can help you, you know, get into good American single malt. Um, we're also doing a program uh, where our membership, uh, this is probably six months away or so, but our membership will be able to uh, recognize their support and their membership in the commission with uh, on bottle, you know, stickers and things of that nature. So look for that, you know. And so one thing that everybody can do is just support us. You know, a lot of these are still small distilleries. Um, the more, you know, pervasive American single malt is in the marketplace, the, the more naturally we'll just become a thing, right? Yeah. And we do think it's we do think it's the next big thing. I mean, take a look at Japanese whiskey. They were really the first category that proved great single malt could be made outside of Scotland. Now they did it in a very Japanese way in that they they went over to Scotland and they, you know, they took an exacting <laughs> process for for replicating it. And I love Japanese whiskey. They do a phenomenal job and they make great whiskeys. Um we really think that American single malt is the next big thing in whiskey and we'll, we'll follow the model in some ways of Japanese whiskey as far as reputation, um, but we'll have a lot more uh, to offer from a flavor profile standpoint. And I was going to say, I'll add to that. If, you know, the, I think the biggest thing arguably that people can do to support the category is to buy it. Yeah. You know, show, help prove the business case for the category and that it needs to be its own thing. Go out, look, look for the American single malt whiskey, because that's the other thing, even though there is no, no accepted standard of identity, the term is still out there. I mean, it's, it's being displayed proudly. So, so look for that American single malt whiskey and try it. Cause the other side of that too, is inevitably what's going to happen. Cause we're, we're seeing it with Japanese whiskey to the point now where you're not finding age stated bottles anymore because they just, they just don't exist. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen is the category is going to start to grow. The demand is going to increase. The supply hopefully is going to, is going to um, keep in line uh, with the demand, but the prices are going to go up. And so when you look at, at the pricing on some really fantastic bottles of American single malt whiskey on the shelf right now, uh, it's kind of the golden age right now, pardon the pun, but it's kind <laughs> of the golden age right now for American single malt whiskey because the, the prices are so affordable. And that's, and that's because kind of going back to the whole foundation for this podcast, people don't really know what it is. And so it, we, we can't, from a price perspective, um, you know, we can't drive that price up based on a reputation that doesn't exist yet, but it's building and it's growing. And so I would say that if you, if you are uh, a supporter of American whiskey, you like scotch, uh, and even bourbon drinkers as well. I mean, cause there's so much crossover and, and similarity to different styles and different expressions of a lot of different juice out there. Give it a try. I mean, it's a really low risk uh, experiment to do, and and you could turn yourself on to something that that you're you're going to be uh, a, a big fan of for the long haul. Yeah, I think a lot of people look at bourbon as kind of a gateway product to whiskey. You know, and a lot again in this country, a lot of people say, "I don't drink whiskey; I drink bourbon." It's <laughs> <laughs> funny, right? So, you know, I think that as 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 bourbon drinkers start to 
you know, expand their horizons a little bit, um, American single malt is, is a natural um, next step. Um, but then coming from the other end, as you mentioned, Scotch whiskey, you know, one of the things that, that kind of marks a Scotch whiskey drinker is a lack of loyalty, which is, you know, a terrible thing for a marketing guy to say, right. And to celebrate, but you know, I'm a, I'm a single malt whiskey fan. Uh, I, before American single malt whiskey was a thing. And before I was in this business a decade ago, you know, I, I drank a lot of scotch and I still do drink a lot of scotch. Um, ask my wife, she'll roll her eyes and tell you that I still buy a lot of scotch whiskey. Um, <laughs> but you know, what's interesting about scotch whiskey drinkers, single malt whiskey drinkers is that they're notoriously not brand loyal. The, the fun part of single malt whiskey is, to explore within it because, you know, unlike corn, and again, I'm a little biased, but, you know, barley, you know, has the potential to create a lot more different flavor profiles. Um, and that's why people are, are so into single malt is because there's so many different things to try. And you go to a single malt, you know, I'm, I'm imagining Matt, your, your cabinet at home, and there's not three things in there. There's 20 things, you know, there's a hundred things, right? There's different, different things, right? Yeah, that's why I was laughing because it sounds like it sounds like your wife and my wife are singing the same song. Yeah. <laughs> well, if my wife was honest, she would say that she appreciates it because she likes to try different things as well. You know, my my wife's great. Every time uh, we sit down to watch Netflix at night, I say, "Well, you want a whiskey?" and she says, "No," and I always pour myself, you know, uh, a hefty dram because I know. Her hand's going to be reaching across the couch any minute now. Saying, Can I have a sip? Can I have a sip? So, you know, she's, she's, and then the next question is, hmm, what is this? You know, she wants to know because there's, there's variety and that's what's fun about single malt. So again, it's even within Scotch whiskey, there's, there's tons of variety. Um, but going back to what we were talking about, you know, what can you do? Try something new because there's a lot of great stuff happening in American single malt whiskey. Um, and, you know, here's your opportunity to embrace the fact that single malt is so diverse in flavor profiles. You know, it's just fun. It's fun to explore. It's fun to try different things. Yeah. You know, if you're just buying Macallan over and over and over again, God, you're missing out on so much. You know, not that Macallan's not great. It is. But, you know, play around a little bit. Be promiscuous, right? <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> love that. Awesome. Well, Steve, uh, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you coming on. And, and um, you know, this is something that I was really hoping to get done uh, in the first 10 episodes of this podcast in, in the very beginning of, of what I hope is, is a long and successful run. Uh, so I appreciate your time and I hope that we can get back together every once in a while and kind of touch base uh, when, when there are sort of new developments on the legislative side or uh, anything new kind of happens in the category. I'd love to be able to kind of circle back with you uh, periodically and, and get updates if that's cool. Of course, I'd love to. And thank you for having me and thank you for the work you're doing and in, in helping to promote this category. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that needs to be happening for it all to work. So we, I speak for all of us. We really appreciate what you're doing. Awesome. Well, Steve Holly, thank you so much. Uh, again, the website, American single malt whiskey.org and, uh, Westland, um, 
can't we can't forget about Westland. You guys are, are how long have you been making single malt at Westland now? Uh, we've been doing it almost ten years now. Um, our first whiskey came out uh, in October of 2013, uh, but we formally established in 2010. So we've been at it a while. Steve, thanks again. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Matt. I have links to the American Single Malt Whiskey Commission and Westland Distillery posted along with the show notes to today's episode on the website, asmwpodcast.com. I've also got all the previous episodes posted there as well, along with all the links to anything that, uh, that was mentioned or discussed in any of those episodes. Thanks again going out to Michael Kirkpatrick for supplying the music for the podcast. Uh, He's doing some really cool stuff right now uh, online every Thursday at 8 p.m. Mountain Time. He's playing live on his social feed. So find him on uh, either Facebook or Instagram for more information on that. And of course, as always, you can check out his website. Uh, The address is michaelkirkpatrickmusic.com. If you like what you hear and you want to support both the podcast and the growth of the American Single Malt Whiskey category, head over to my Patreon site where you can become a Single Malt Matters patron. The address is patreon.com slash ASMW. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, This was really, it was such an important episode for me to do, and I'm really thankful that I was able to do it as quickly as I did. And thanks again, of course, so much to Mr. Steve Hawley from the American Single Malt Whiskey Commission for taking the time to get together for the interview. Next week, we're headed back to Colorado to chat with the founder and owner of Woods High Mountain Distillery and second-term mayor of Salida, Colorado, Mr. P.T. Wood. Until then...